Paul writing says, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love. Let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Grow up. Usually those words come in angry or cynical tones when someone is disappointed or unhappy with us. J.M. Barry called growing up a barbarous business full of inconvenience and pimples. He's not wrong. If you're at least my age, you remember the happy song, I don't want to grow up because maybe if I did, I couldn't be a Toys R Us kid. And there's a fate worse than death, not being a Toys R Us kid. In some ways, it does seem that the modern church has decided to not grow up. The pervading style and substance of wider church culture is in many ways elementary, even frivolous at times, desperate to be youthful. But God's plan for us doesn't stop at spiritual childhood. Uh, The Bible's really clear on that. Paul's very clear on it tonight. Paul says that we must grow into spiritual adulthood. We must advance to maturity, leaving childishness behind. It is essential for your spiritual safety and success, but also the Lord tells us through his servant Paul that your maturity is vital not only for you, but for the person sitting next to you in his church, and that we have a responsibility to one another, for one another, and on our own behalf to mature in the Lord. A church is healthy when individual members are growing together in love and truth and application of their gifts. As they do, their lives become infused and intertwined in such a way that they strengthen and support one another and become together what a Christian cannot be alone. Verse 14 says this, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. We stopped last time sort of mid-thought. A lot of these verses in, in Ephesians and in the rest of Paul's writings are long and intricate and, and dense. You've got to stop somewhere. Just above this verse, we see that Paul explains how in the church, God provides all that we need to grow in our faith and in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and to be equipped for the work of ministry. We talked about that last time, how all of us are being equipped uh, to do the work of ministry for the Lord. As we apprehend what the Lord wants to do and then present ourselves in cooperation with that work, we mature. That's how it works. And that's how it works for every Christian. Paul includes himself here. It's so great to see the great apostle. We call him that. He didn't call himself that. But we think of him as the great apostle. And in this section, we see him talking about we and us. He includes himself. He says, then we will no longer be little children. He didn't class himself differently than the rest of us. He didn't say that spiritual maturity was for some believers and not for others. He said, man, this is for all of us, every single person in the church. 
Now, you might raise your hand and say, wait, aren't we supposed to be like children? Didn't Jesus say, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it? He did say that. Uh, But we're looking at things from a slightly different perspective here. Pastor Ray Stedman reminds us that there is a difference between being childish and being childlike. And John Stott clarifies that difference. We need to be like children in humility and innocence. We talked about that in some previous passages. But not childish in ignorance and instability. It's childish ignorance and instability that Paul has in mind in these verses. It's dangerous for a Christian, for you and for me, to stay spiritually childish, to be spiritually ignorant and unstable and gullible because of the wind and the waves and the adversaries we face in life. That's the message of Paul's verse here. He begins with a picture of a ship at sea. Uh, The voyage is hard and long. Uh, At school, at home, the kids are learning about some of the explorers, Columbus, Magellan, and, uh, and today they were wrapping up, you know, the story of Magellan and the voyage to circumnavigate the globe and how they started with hundreds and five ships, and at the end there was one ship and 18 guys, and Magellan wasn't one of them. Right? So we all think, well, Magellan was the first to navigate the globe. Nope. Uh, his, his entourage, his group, technically was the first to circumnavigate the glo- globe, but hundreds of them didn't make it. It's, it's a hard voyage out there. And in life, we sail into the unknown, right? There's a lot of things God reveals for us. Um, but as far as you living your life, what's going to happen tonight? What's going to happen tomorrow? in our own personal lives, in our community, in our country, in the world. There's a lot that is unknown. We're sailing into it. And we sail into the unknown, trusting the heading and the equipment that our Father supplies. But as we go, there are troubles, right, that slam against us on the way. And if we're not prepared for them, if we're not spiritually strong and resilient Uh, We're going to be maybe blown off course, maybe swept overboard. All sorts of shipwrecks can happen. The term Paul uses for blown around here means to be spun like a top. Uh, Fun to play with a top, not fun to be a top. I know some of you enjoy things like the teacup ride at Disneyland. If I was in charge, there's a lot of things I would do on day one, right? You know, they talk about the presidential candidates, what they'll do on day one. I'd need like a full 23 and a half hours to do all the things I would do on day one if I was in charge of everything. But getting rid of the Disneyland teacups is on that list. So I just want everybody to know that. I don't want to be spun around. At our extended family gatherings on Kelly's side, we have a little one-year-old niece, little sweetie. She recently started walking. And so now, if we're over, uh, she likes to traverse the living room constantly, but it's not very safe for her. In fact, it's decidedly unsafe for her. And so we've we're always got to cover up corners of furniture with our hands because it's like right at eye puncture level, and she's barely able to kind of navigate around. The smallest thing is going to send her tumbling down off her feet, a sock on the rug. Sometimes even just someone walking by her, not even bumping her, just walking by her, she goes down. And so... When it's time, like we were there this last weekend and, and it was a birthday celebration. And so at some point we brought the birthday cake out with the candle, right? And when it's time to bring out the birthday cake with flickering candles, you don't hand it to our one-year-old niece to carry it to the birthday person, right? It would be a disaster for her and for everyone else and for the cake. 
Uh, we understand that. She doesn't have the strength. She doesn't have the bearing. She doesn't have the maturity that she needs. There are regular waves in life. And then, of course, there are rogue waves that come out of nowhere. Now, we can't avoid them, so we need to be ready for them. If you're a Disney fan and Disney Mo- Disney's Moana, you may recall that Moana first tried to head out beyond the reef in her little boat. It wasn't strong enough for the voyage, and so she was immediately capsized, her and the little pig. She needed a stronger ship that could handle the rough seas. And so God's desire is that we grow in strength and capacity and equipment as spiritual people, that we be men and women who are seaworthy and ready for the crossing, ready to be laden with spiritual freight and to withstand the, the waves, both regular and rogue, that come our way. After the waves, Paul warns us of the winds of teaching. Throughout church history, there's been wind after wind of false teaching that blows into the church. The early church had to grapple with the blowing of Gnosticism, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There were those who demanded all Christians follow the Mosaic law, all teachings that were not right and had to be, had to be contended with. There may have been, a, uh, or rather, there have been many other false teachings that sweep in and blow saints off course throughout the centuries, right? But it's not just out-and-out false teachings that can cause a problem in the life of a Christian if that Christian is not mature. Sometimes there are what one commentator called gusts of doctrine that hit the church. Sometimes you can identify those by what books are super popular among Christians. Um, you know, Christians as a culture, we kind, of, we kind of grab onto certain things at certain times and everybody's writing books about them and sharing books about them and writing articles about them and hammering it and you need to read this, you need to think this, you need to do this, sort of a gust of doctrine. Not necessarily that that doctrine is false or wrong, but it becomes a hyper-focus. And the truth is, when a believer is not mature, they can be blown around by the hyper-focus on some specific doctrine, some pet doctrine, and then become unbalanced in their walk with the Lord. Uh, it's not necessarily that the content of what they're believing is altogether wrong. It's just that they're off balance. And we talked about that several passages ago, about walking worthy is about walking in a balanced way with the Lord. And so... Paul says, hey, you know, these things blow into the church and we need to be ready for them. At those family gatherings I mentioned, we also have a four-year-old nephew named Charlie. I love talking to Charlie because he will believe anything I say. I know it's going to come back to bite me at some point, but I'm his uncle and I just love it so much. He gets excited about the coming birthday cake. And then I tell him, well, of course, Charlie, you, right, you know that it's a broccoli cake, right? It's made all out of broccoli. And I just see the concern wash over Charlie's face. And he's searching out other adults that are more trustworthy to see if, if what his uncle is saying is true or not. Uh, right now, and this is a multi-week process that I've been working through, I'm trying to convince Charlie that uh, his elementary school needs to develop a call for their mascot. So he goes to an elementary school and they're the owls. That's the mascot. I say, well, do you guys like have a, like a call? Do you guys do, you know, does your owl say anything? He says, no. So I keep telling him how he needs to pull his teacher aside and, he's, and tell her that he has this idea that all the students can regularly call out mighty owls, hoo, hoo. And, and I'm, I'm close. He doesn't want to do it yet, but I keep rocking that vending machine back and forth, and eventually it's going to come over. I, he, I can see he's, he's thinking about doing it. Why? Because I keep blowing this wind of teaching right into his ear. 
So that's silly, but on a spiritual level, these things are very serious, right? One commentator notes this. There are ideas and modes of life that lead to shipwreck. It's just true. Uh, There are false doctrines out there, and when a person... Uh, turns the rudder of their life according to them, it leads to shipwreck. Paul certainly thought that was true. And there are adversaries actively trying to take advantage of people. That's the last part of verse 14. They're cunning, cheating deceivers. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders to be on uh, on guard against these types of people back in Acts chapter 20, five or seven years before he wrote this letter. He had his final in-person meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he says, hey, the one thing I really want to tell you, or one of the most important things I have to say to you, be on guard for these false teachers that are going to come in and try to take advantage of you. And it seems that the, the church at Ephesus took that warning to heart decades later. When Jesus wrote another letter to this church, he said to them, you know what, you guys, you've done a great job testing those who claim they are apostles and are not, right? So they took it to heart. Uh, but this is, uh, th- this is something that all Christians need to take, uh, take to heart. Being careful about what we're being taught. Uh, being careful about what sort of ideas are taking root in our hearts. Ideas about the Lord, ideas about the Bible, It's especially important for us because we have access to every idea right now. You could listen to podcasts morning, noon, and night with all sorts of ideas and all of them claiming to be Christian or biblical, and many of them are just not. And so we need to understand uh, how to discern uh, the true from the false, the right from the wrong, And if we are spiritually children, we're going to be blown off course by those things. False doctrine stunts growth. And we can't afford to be stunted because waves and wars are coming. Later in Ephesians, Paul is going to talk to us and the church about putting on armor and joining in the fight against evil forces in the heavens, right? Toddlers can't wear armor or swing a sword. Do you remember that bleak moment in the two towers, uh, the fight at Helm's Deep? And there's that uh, really chilling montage where the last few remaining men are getting ready to fight against the countless hordes of evil orcs, right? And, And they go around and they start pulling all the young boys away from their mothers and then bringing them in and the chainmail doesn't fit and the swords are too heavy and they aren't any good anyway. And, and you understand as a viewer in that moment just how bleak that is, just how terrible that is, just how hopeless that scene is gonna be because what can that child do against an experienced warrior? And so Paul says, listen, we need to leave spiritual childhood behind. We need to grow up and keep growing up. Of course, you can't make yourself grow. A tree can't make itself grow. A child can't make itself grow. A building can't make itself grow. God is the one who accomplishes this work. And that's what Paul's been explaining for chapter after chapter. But we participate. We submit to it. We present ourselves for it. We acknowledge, hey, this is what the Lord wants to do. And so I am going to show up, as it were, and say to the Lord, I know what you want to do. I know, uh, you know that I want it as well. And so I'm going to position myself to be ready for you to do this work. How do we participate in it? Well, here's some shoe leather for us in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. And so Paul says, let us grow. 
Let's do it. Let's grow. It's about being, not doing. There are things to do, and that's what the second half of Ephesians is all about, about some of the practical, logistical, day-to-day exercises of the Christian life. But the message of Ephesians is primarily about what God has done and what he is doing and what he's still going to do in our lives. It's not what we have to do to be good Christians, right? It's that, hey, the Lord's doing this good thing in your life, this cosmic work. He's, you know, filling your life and using you and doing all of these different things. And you want to be a part of that. And so here's how we walk worthy with him. And as we do, he accomplishes his work. He grows us. To the Philippians, Paul would write, let this mind be of Christ be in you right? Kind of like where he says here, let us grow. Let's, let's, let's do it. Let's let it happen. Don't resist the work of the Spirit. Don't distract yourself from God's leading and prompting. Don't drift off toward temptations or traps that are found along the way. John Mackey writes, the secret of Christian thought and life consists in the constant maintenance of closeness to Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good phrase. That that's what the secret of Christian life is, that I walk with the Lord, that I stay close to Jesus Christ. It's not me lifting the heavy end of things. It's not me accomplishing the work. It's Jesus Christ accomplishing it in me as I commune with him, as I remain with him, as I'm beside him, as I'm in pace with him, as I'm close to him, he does it. If we're close to Jesus, then he is able to do all the things he wants to do. He grows us, he equips us, he directs and sends us, he roots us, he assigns us, he gifts us. It all happens by us walking with him, by us being close to him. As we align our attitudes and our actions and our articulations with Christ, he grows us. And and we notice here he says, let us grow in every way into him who is the head Christ. He identifies him and it's important that we remind ourselves in this day and age, it is not the Christ of our own imagination. It is the Christ revealed in the living word of God. We've been shown, we've been told who Jesus is, what he did, what he said. It is on the pages of the inspired and errant word of God. Jesus said he came in the volume of the book. And we live in a culture that is constantly redefining or trying to shape truth or shape understanding, shape history into preconceived ideas or agendas. And we need to not do that with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not conformed to who you want him to be. He has been revealed on the pages of scripture and we are to conform to his image. Paul does give a practical directive for us to cooperate with the Lord though. He says, okay, listen, here's part of the growth process. If you want to sort of show up and present yourself and allow the Lord to work in your life the way he wants, here's a, a practical way of participating in that work. He says, speaking the truth in love. Now, linguists will tell us that the words speaking are not there, that the, the, the words actually in, or literally say, truthing in love, let us grow. It, it involves verbal testimony to truth. If you want to truthing, it involves verbal testimony, of course, but it also means that we cherish the truth. It means dealing truly. It means incarnating truth. That's a, a great thought for us. Because think about how Jesus is God incarnate, right? God come in human flesh. And here we're called to a life of truth incarnate, right? Where truth is being lived out in and through us, that we become truth incarnate because the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the word of God is is made alive in us. 
and in our thoughts and our attitudes and our words and our actions. That God's truth incarnates in us and in our uh, lives. If the term didn't have so much baggage, we could say we're truthers. Don't tell people you're a truther. Remember truthers? Back in the early days of conspiracy theory, before conspiracy theories were all true? No, I'm just kidding. But so we live it out. We speak the truth. We cherish it. But we notice here, very important, God's truth is never to be used as a cudgel to attack people. Think of every political YouTube video clogging up your feed right now whose title is Liberal College Student Destroyed or Watch This Person Get Wrecked When They Ask Their Question, those sorts of things. We love to click on those. But that approach is not helpful, and it certainly isn't godly. It feels good to our sinful hearts to see a person we disagree with put in their place, embarrassed, squashed down with what we say, yeah, they, they told them like it is. They told them the truth. Maybe, but I'll tell you what, to every one of the recipients of those videos, it was just a clanging gong and a resounding cymbal. Uh, their, their minds aren't changed. Uh, It feels good to our sinful hearts. That's why our culture is saturated with hatred and disputes and altercations. Everyone wants to destroy everyone else. But as one author notes, that kind of adversarial truth, it may flatter our own pride, but it's not godly truth. It's a truth gone mad, he says. It does not unite, it divides. It does not build up, it tears down. It does not include, it excludes. Our culture loves that approach to truth, a destructive debilitating, embarrassing truth. Christians are called to the opposite. We are called to truth in agape, right? He says, do you want to know how to walk worthy with the Lord? You want to know how to grow in maturity as a spiritual person? Truthing in agape. That's one of the best things that we can operate in our lives in this process. As far as God is concerned, you cannot separate truth from love. And remember, in that letter Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus, what was his complaint to them? He says, hey, by the way, yeah, you've done a really good job making sure false teachers didn't blow into the church, but you don't love. You don't love me. You don't love others. You've left your first love, and that's a real problem. You can't have one or the other. They have to be put together. Gospel truth is always motivated by and accomplished in love, agape love, which is a love that always seeks the benefit of others. That's what Christ has done for you and for me. A growing Christian, a believer who is walking with the Lord and having the Lord develop all the strength and joy and spiritual power that Paul has been talking about in passage after passage of this letter, that Christian is gonna be someone who loves the truth and cherishes it. They will defend the truth and verbalize it to others, but their truthing will always be done in love. Now, of course, we live in a time where truth is constantly under attack. Even basic truths of reality are being besieged from all, all angles. So how should we bes- respond? If we're the truth people, if we're truthers, how should we respond? How can we really truth in love when the attacks are so vile and so vicious and uh, so pervasive? Well, one thing that we can do is, is always remember that our goal as representatives of Jesus Christ, as bearers of the image of God, bearers of the truth of God, and messengers of the gospel truth 
to always remember that our goal is not to destroy, but to deliver. God delivered you from the lies of sin and Satan that held you captive. He delivered me from those lies. He wants to deliver others through you, through your spreading of the truth uh, in love. As you incarnate the truth of the gospel, as you live it out lovingly in word and deed and attitude, that kind of operation leads to deliverance. And that's the goal, not to destroy the person that disagrees with us, but to deliver them the way we've been delivered. As we grow, we develop into the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not need to change. We do. We're the ones that need to mature. He doesn't need to mature. He doesn't need to adapt to all the things we know now and the changing you know, social mores and all the changing culture and all of that. We don't need to reframe Jesus or reframe his word or, or you know, recast Christianity in some way. It's us that needs to change into his image. He is the perfect son of God. He is the one perfect man, right? He's the head. And it's the head that where we find the person, the personality, the authority, the character, the distinctiveness. That's sourced from the head. And so it is we who conform to him. Verse 16, from him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. If you've ever watched a cooking competition show like Top Chef, at some point you've heard one of the chefs say, it was made with love. I hate it so much. That's on my list of day one things. Banned. You're not allowed to say that anymore. It's made with love. Well, unfortunately, while you were mixing in love, you forgot salt. So you can go. Pack your knives, right? They always say that. And you can, you know, lots of food packaging made with love. I don't know what that means. And I don't, frankly, I don't like it, you know. Uh, but as God makes us, he makes us with love, right? We see how love saturates everything about the work of God in our lives. We truth in love. We're built up in love. We're rooted and established in love. If love is lacking in our relationships with other believers or in our perspective on the unsaved, something has become disconnected in our walk with the Lord. We've drifted away from nearness to the Lord in some way. We can't properly work as members of Christ's body unless we are energized by God's love. What did he say in Hosea? I've drawn you with cords of love. That's how he knits us together. That's how he energizes us. That's how he builds us, roots us, establishes us. We'll know, we're known we are Christians by our love, right? Paul, again, highlights the importance of each other, one another in the church. This plan God is accomplishing has an individual aspect, of course, but it is simultaneously at also about an interconnected communal uh, aspect of life. It's not one or the other. It's not both if you can get it. I mean, it's, it's both of these things. He says, I'm doing a work individually in your life while I'm, and so that I can work communally through your life and interconnect you with other members of the body. God wants you to grow as an individual Christian, but he also wants to use you to help others around you grow and use them to help you grow. And so there's this intertwining that we see. As we each develop and mature, it helps the rest of the body of Christ function properly. Our maturity helps the body be supported and gain strength and compensate for weaker members and endure difficulties. 
The goal of Christian maturity is building up with one another, not tearing down. It's so much easier to tear down. So much easier to dismantle and to, and to tear away at things. But God wants to build us up, upbuilding his church, and that we be doing it together. Have you heard someone talk about deconstruction yet? Read that word or heard about it? Most often it refers to usually younger evangelical Christians getting rid of the truths they used to believe in, getting rid of the church, and then redefining their faith, often in an individualistic sense. And usually, from, from my little experience from seeing this out there, usually changing the truths they believe to, wouldn't you know it, be very much in step with the world's culture and say, I've deconstructed my faith, and now I understand that, you know, really being a Christian means just following along with the world's culture, getting rid of the church. I don't have to go. I'm not a part of that. Too many hypocrites, too many whatever. That's not only what it means. It's a broad term, but in general, that's kind of what is being talked about when you hear about deconstruction. Listen, deconstruction is not God's goal for you. Self-centered, isolated Christianity where you redefine truth according to what sounds good to you is not God's goal for you. His goal for me and for you and for the person sitting next to you is unified growth together where we all grow in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ as he's revealed on the pages of scripture and as that, that we grow together in active support and unity in a local fellowship, a local uh, a church, which is a representation of the church universal, where individually and corporately we are becoming more and more like the God-man Jesus Christ. And it's an ongoing process. In another letter, Paul said that he hadn't yet crossed the finish line. He says, I haven't attained yet. I'm still working on it. The Lord's still maturing me. I'm still growing. But knowing that this is the plan, that this is the process, that this is what God desires, and this is, he says, hey, this is what I'm going to do in your life. Knowing that, it helps us to stay mindful. It helps us to stay careful as Christians. Your spiritual maturity isn't just about you. It's about the whole body. Remember what Romans 12, 5 says. It says, we are individually members of one another. What a crazy phrase. You are individually members of one another. And they are members of you. That's the work that God is doing. And the good news, though, is that, okay, well, man, that's a lot of pressure. And I have to be mature. And all these people are depending on me. And blah, you know. But the great news is the pressure's not on us. Not really. The pressure's on the Lord. It's his work. It's his project from him, Paul says. The body is supplied with what it needs to grow. The term Paul uses refers to someone who pays the cost for a chorus at a public festival. I love Greek. I don't know anything about it, but they say, yeah, this term he used for the supply God gives and, and the from him that he is giving to us and preparing us, it is, it is the, a person who pays the cost for a chorus at a public festival. It's also a term that means to make provisions for an army or an expedition. We are Christ's body left on earth as a chorus of praise, as an army of light, sent on an expedition to the corners of the earth, proclaiming the truth, making the disciples and becoming stronger together as we go. I have a part in this unfolding work, an individual part, and so do you. And together, as we operate our parts... We are the body of Christ, and together we are a new humanity, the third race we've been called in, in history and in antiquity. 
And so it's time to grow up. God wants each of us and all of us to develop in our understanding, our knowledge of spiritual things, our stability in Christ, our power to endure the wind and the waves. He will do it if we let him. And we'll all be the better as each is made better by his work.